Welcome to the McKnight Group's podcast, The Influence of Missions. This episode is part of a limited podcast series celebrating 50 years serving churches and leading in innovative church design and building. In our last podcast, we shared stories of memorable churches we've known and worked with since the early days of the McKnight Group. But today, we get to dive into how missions drastically changed the way the McKnight Group designed and developed buildings and was a catalyst to start a major trend in new church facilities. Welcome back to the founder, Homer McKnight. Homer, you have served on not just a few, but over a hundred mission trips to build churches internationally. How did you first get involved with mission work? Uh, thank you, Madison. That was uh, 1974. We started the company in 1970, 1974. I hadn't taken a, a family vacation or a break, uh, done anything other than build the company and do what we started out to do for four years. My wife heard that the Central High District of the Church of the Nazarene was going to go to Haiti and they needed volunteers and she suggested that I ought to go. I told her, I said, I don't have time to do that. We haven't had a vacation. I, I don't even have a weekend off. How can I go to Haiti for two weeks? She said, I really think you ought to do that. You need to take a break and do that. And so I did. I signed up and I went and that um, exactly was a life-changing experience. I'd never been out of the country. I'd never been on a plane uh, at that time. And so all I was aware of was life around me and business and all the goals and ambitions that I had. And then I end up in a country, the poorest in the Western Hemisphere, where 80% of the people were illiterate. 80% of the people were without jobs. They were starving to death. There was a famine in the country. And I'm dumped in the middle of that with a team of people I didn't know to build a building. And uh, that was quite, uh, quite an experience. We would take our lunches. We would work hard in the, in the heat and we would try to eat our lunches and there's a thousand eyes watching you because the people were starving all around you. It was very, very difficult <clears throat> to work in that environment uh, to see the suffering of the people. And we were building a church building. We found out that the church building became the hub of the village and they used it for uh, for meetings, for storm shelter, for uh, if they could get a visiting doctor, a clinic, and those kinds of things. So the building was important that they would have. I also learned that the people um, wanted to work. They stood around doing nothing because there was nothing to do. And so they volunteered and helped us build the building. And we got to know, for the first time, I got to know people in their own culture, in their own villages and realized how privileged we were here in the United States to have the things that we grew up with and know the things that we knew. What happened to you while you were in Haiti? The big change in Haiti was, of course, in me. I'd not been before. I didn't have anything to do with the project. I simply went to work. What I found was not only... Uh, were the people in great need, but the church was in great need. They didn't have the experienced people that they needed to help them with these kinds of projects. So I saw that um, 
God had blessed me with my architectural uh, training and being able to start a company and run a company and knowing about construction and buildings that I had to uh, help the church around the world with what God had blessed me with. So that was the big change. It was in me. I came home and told my wife, <clears throat> if I ever complain about not having something, I want you to give me a swift kick because we have everything we need. That mission trip to Haiti was very impactful on your life. How so? Well, it really was. Um, I signed up for a second trip to Haiti and took that trip and then two weeks after coming home from that one went to Belize. And um, what I found was the churches needed help the whole organization needed help. The, the concept of laymen, uh, non-missionaries going and working with the, in the mission fields and building buildings was relatively new in the church. And it was not very well organized. And I saw that with my skills that I could organize. So I went to our pastor and I said, you know, our church needs to do this as a church and be better organized. And he said, well, do it, lead it. And I said again, well, someone needs to do it. I'm so busy. I've, like every other new company and someone starting a new company, you work around the clock. You don't think you can take the time off and do that. Your focus is on building your building. And uh, what I saw was from uh, those first three trips that I'd taken that I had good people and they kept the company going and doing everything we needed to do and the company did not suffer for it yes I was gone and and that was a big part of it but the company went on so I started leading and planning the general church the church of the Nazarene headquarters asked me to be part of a committee to put together guidelines for other people that wanted to do that so I met with a team of five including missionaries and and uh, church officials and we put together a workbook for other teams to be able to do it. But Grosse Church of the Nazarene, my church, started doing our own trips. So almost all of those other over 100 trips that we took after that was our church. I planned the, the project. I did the drawings if drawings needed to be done. I put the teams together. I did the advanced trip, put all of that together. So that's how I took action and, and it grew. I was going at least once a year, a lot of times twice a year. One year I went six trips, including Europe and um, several other places. So that's how I got involved and really got immersed in, in missions. How would you compare the churches you've built overseas with the churches you've built here in the U.S.? You really can't uh, compare the buildings because... They had to be fairly simple buildings, uh, not nearly as expensive, and, and volunteers and teams of volunteers had to be able to build them. So they were basically simple because we were going into communities that didn't have churches and to a lot of villages, even in the jungles and other areas, where there wasn't even a permanent structure. They lived in thatch and wood uh, buildings, so we were building permanent structures. The, the main difference that we found and the thing that, that changed me in the concept of thinking about churches was that these buildings became 
the life of the village because they were everything from a stored storm shelter to uh, schools to whatever they needed, a town meeting place, and and that helped the churches understand that if they got involved in the life of the village, that they could impact the village. So they were simple buildings, and the people didn't... Uh, that that impacted the future of how it changed my thinking of church buildings back here in the States. What new values were established in the Midnight Group as a result of your experience? A lot of values changed. Um, a lot of new ideas. First of all, I realized that I didn't have to do everything. Like many who start their companies, you think you have to be involved with everything and start, and, and have your hands in everything. But I had good people, and I realized they had just as uh, as important a role, and they wanted to help churches the same as we did. What what changed the most from the mission field that that totally um, changed the direction we were going was the idea that uh, as we started in architecture, we had learned from the past, and churches essentially thought their building had to be a beautiful place and the first space they had to have was for worship only. And many churches only wanted their sanctuaries to be used for worship. So they would put all their money in a building that they used three hours a week. And uh, they would let other things go because they had to have a beautiful building. And architecture... The training in architecture is the building is what's important. Well, the church is not the building. The church is the people. The building is a place to worship. And the more we learned that as we went to the mission field, they would say, now remember, this isn't the United States. We don't have a place just on Sunday morning. We have to have a place every day of the week for all the needs of these villages, communities. And that that whole idea resonated with me as I would meet with church boards and building committees, and they would argue for hours over the color in the stained glass window or the color of the carpet or the padded pews. They would spend all of their time. They weren't talking about their communities or how the church where it was impacting the community because the building committee, they had been trained and all we'd ever known was the building had to be beautiful. And you would hear um, people say, well, when you walk in the building, your eyes have to be drawn to the heavens and all of these things. Those are all wonderful things if you've got all the money that you need to do. But when you put your money there and the building sits empty, 98% of the time, it's not good stewardship of money. So I realized that we had to start at building buildings that impacted the communities the churches were in. Well, that means they needed children's programs, they needed youth areas, they needed uh, fellowship areas, they needed community areas where they could uh, meet. That is the church. But we weren't doing it with the buildings we were building. We had to come up with a new concept to be able to make the building a tool to be used every day 
to enable the church to meet the needs of their community. And that came along when Grove City, my own church, needed to relocate. And they said, what kind of building are we going to build? And I told the board, I was on the board, and I told the board, we needed a building that was going to allow us to meet the needs of Grove City, Ohio, our youth. We were in a building that had a sanctuary and a tiny little fellowship hall and some classrooms. And our youth had nothing, no place to meet. We had a very tiny foyer. We couldn't, uh, we couldn't do anything except have church. And I said, we need to go more than that. The board said, but we want a bigger sanctuary first. And I said, no, I don't think that's the way to go. God had given me a vision for a church, a building. I said, let me draw it, show you, and explain it to you what we can do with this building. And I took several weeks and I designed a building. The first true Mala Ministry Worship Center. Churches had been building, they'd been understanding they needed to do more for a while, but they didn't know how to go about it. So they'd say, well, let's master plan. If we're going to have a sanctuary and we're going to have a gymnasium, we're going to have classrooms, we're going to do all these things in the future, let's just build the gym first and we'll worship in it for a while till we can afford to build a sanctuary. The problem with that was they built a gym. They did not build a sanctuary. And as churches did that, and they would move in portable platforms and have to set up every Sunday on portable platforms and move a lot of, of equipment and their pianos and organs and everything in and out. They didn't like it. Number one, it looked like a gym. It felt like a gym. And it was a lot of work. So those churches didn't really grow because they didn't want to change it over and do all of that work. And it was, they called them sanctatoriums, gymnatoriums, sanctanasiums, all kinds of names. I didn't like any of those names. So we called ours Family Life Center or Family Ministry Center. And the difference in the concept was we made it a worship center first with its own platform and set up. And so that to use it for worship, all you had to do was set up chairs and everything was in place, sound system, nothing portable, nice big stage, choir, all the things you could do. And we made it a worship center first. But the big seating area, which is the bulk of the space, we made without pews. That was the restrictive thing that happened set up chairs, you could have worship. We did carpeted floors, they had sports carpeted floors, so it wasn't a gym floor, even though the carpet had lines in it for basketball, volleyball, and other games, because that had been developed and it was a very good material. So we made our worship centers look so nice 
that when they were set up for worship, people would walk in, would not even know that that was the gymnasium or multi-ministry space during the week. And when basketball would be announced, people would say, well, where do you play basketball? They wouldn't even see the retractable baskets. We painted it in in uh, decor that that would work for everything included worship. So we made our multi-ministry worship centers feel so good for worship that the churches then didn't feel the loss of a sanctuary. And then the other 98% of the time, it could be used for everything. We'd always put a kitchen off of it. So anything the church needed to do for youth, for the church ministry, all of those kinds of things could happen in that one space. And that was the big, big change. And when I showed that to our church board and explained it to them, they said, wow, we don't, we don't know what it's going to be like to move out of this sanctuary with stained glass windows and padded pews and, and sit in chairs. And then I told them the reason again. Our church always reached out to others, always wanted to help others, always wanted to minister to the community. So here's what they said. Well, we don't know if it'll work or not but we're going to try it and we're going to do it. And that's how we built the first one. And um, history shows that was probably one of the best moves that they ever made. So when you first started designing family life centers, now we refer to them as multi-ministry buildings. Um, at the time, it was a new and very different concept from the traditional sanctuary here in the U.S., since it wasn't a popular trend yet, you were pioneering in designing and building churches that were both worship spaces and community gatherings. Did you receive much pushback as you were starting this trend? Well, there was pushback. There wasn't, there wasn't um, a negative push. There were questions. Churches today, when they, wanna, when they want a building, they normally visit other buildings like what they want and try to get ideas from them and and they'll see even send committees out and visit other buildings this being a brand new concept there was none to show them and so they had to take it all on faith fortunately they had trust in their leadership and they were waiting there were a lot of questions during the construction because nobody had ever seen a building like this before no, what they knew is they didn't like the gymnatoriums and they didn't like the sanctanasiums, but that wasn't what this was. This was a brand new concept. And so during the nine months it took to build, uh, there were a lot of questions. But let me tell you, the celebration, the day that we moved in the building and had the first service allayed all of those questions and fears. Church people like other people, don't like change and they didn't know anything any different but once they experienced the new building and how wonderfully it worked there were no more there was no more pushback on that and then the future people that we were able to work with came and visited and could see a building I even walked in one day had a meeting at church and I walked in one day and there was a group looking around the Malta ministry center and one guy was a, a big guy, was actually uh, 
telling them about the space and uh, and explaining a little bit about it. And I walked up to them and I said, my name's Homer McKnight. I go to church here. I'm also the architect. I see you're looking at the building. Can I help you? And he was embarrassed because he was another architect that had brought a church group to look at our building because he didn't have anything to show them like we had done. And he was explaining our building to them and he was embarrassed that I walked in on them. Uh, but that's okay. The pushback once um, turned positive, once they experienced it, and I thought it was it was really the catalyst for the explosive growth of Grove City Church of the Nazarene. What are some examples of churches you've worked with who really grabbed a hold of this concept that the church is meant to be a tool to spread the gospel in the community? Well, there there are many there, and and I'm just pleased to say there are many. I'll I'll name a few. Of course, we talked about Grocery Church of Nazarene, our own church, but they embraced the concept. In fact, in the master plan, the sanctuary was going to be the third or fourth phase because they knew all the other spaces were vitally important. Now, Grove City grew from uh, um, 400 people to uh, 2,000 people fairly rapidly in those buildings and so they embraced it lots of people came and we built many other buildings because of it another church that came and visited and uh, wanted the concept was vineyard church in columbus ohio and we did a a similar building for them and they are one of the large great churches in columbus ohio and have planted many churches out of that church and that same concept worked for them and they followed the pattern of the things we did with Grove City, uh, including their large new worship center, which was a later phase in their in their community centers. Another church in the Columbus area that followed suit was Cypress Wesleyan, and they're they're a great church, and they have multi sites now, and they they followed that same philosophy that buildings are ministry tools and once they did that the church just grew explosively um, Fairview Village in north of uh, Philadelphia another church that did a similar thing when I first went I remember my interview with them and they wanted a new sanctuary just a bigger sanctuary than they had and I showed them the motor ministry concept and talked with them and met with their board and they voted unanimously to not build a sanctuary but build the motor ministry worship center and that church had very strong growth following that. Bethany Wesleyan, another church um, in uh, eastern Pennsylvania had similar results with that. First Church of God in Columbus, Ohio um, I remember so vividly talking with them and they said no and the pastor was emphatic you have to build a sanctuary first they bought new property they were going to go out on new property a new area of the community and build a sanctuary first and I told him pastor Clark that will not 
work for you. You'll put all your money in it, and you will not be able to minister to that community. You need to build a multi-ministry worship center first. It was a hard, hard sell, but finally he said, okay, we're going to do that, but the next building is going to be the sanctuary. I said, fine, just do this one first, and they built a big one, and the church just exploded, and he called and said, we build a get, we got to build again, but he said, you were right. He said, we're not going to build the sanctuary. We've got to build a bigger better youth center and children's building because that's what's going to help us. And so we did that building. And to this day, they have not built the sanctuary. In fact, they decided they were not going to build the sanctuary. We just did some remodeling of the original Moto Ministry Worship Center. So all of those churches, it, it dramatically changed their tra trajectory and growth not because of the building, but because they understood the building would allow them to do that. And once they got that understanding and used the building as a tool, their churches did remarkably well. The building that really took us outside of Ohio was Indianapolis First Church, the Nazarene. It was right on uh, I-70 as you drive, uh, as you approach coming into Indianapolis uh, from the east. You can see it. They they bought a big new property. They had a. I can still remember going to the interview downtown, uh, landlocked uh, church, old Indianapolis First Church, and they wanted. They'd bought this new property right on the freeway that everybody could see as you come in Indianapolis, and they wanted a big new sanctuary put there. So that everybody could see. But Indianapolis is ringed with beautiful churches and sanctuaries all around the outer belt and all through the city. And they would have just been one more of a number of churches, nice churches, but they would have been handicapped because the money they had, every bit of it would have gone into a sanctuary. They would have been hurting in children's area, youth area, uh, foyers, all of those spaces that uh, are so important today. And um, I made my typical presentation and explanation of how the building was a tool and how it could change them as a church and their opportunity to minister. And they went along with it, and we designed and built a beautiful Mola ministry building for them, not just one to worship in, but a second one with a youth Mola ministry space with duplicate stages pretty much like we'd done at Grove City. Grove City was a catalyst in, in us doing that because they came to Grove City. That was the changing point, not just my presentation to the board, but they brought a bus over with their entire board and many of their church leaders and visited Grove City and came for a service. And once they saw how that building worked, they were sold, and that's why we did their big new building in Indianapolis, and that started us outside of the state of Ohio. So while you're designing and building all these new churches, you're still taking mission trips throughout it all. As a businessman, I imagine many business leaders would point out that taking so many mission trips may hurt your company. How is it then that you and the McKnight Group thrived? That was a 
that was a, one of the greatest things I had to learn. Taking mission trips, leading mission trips, you have to depend on God to make things work out. We saw a lot of miracles. I mean, I could write books on the miracles that we saw. We tend to expect miracles or God's help when we're in situations we can't handle ourselves, like in foreign countries. You can't control deliveries or who or suppliers or weather or any of those things. You have short times on these mission trips. So you're depending, praying, depending on God to work these things out. But what God showed me was I needed to do that back here, too with my own people. I had good people, the company was growing, and I needed to just depend on my people to continue to do more and more so that I could continue the mission projects that I had. And I think I might have mentioned I took six trips in one year. That was a, that was a lot of time away. And uh, that was not vacation, those were mission trips. But David, uh, my son David, uh, w- was, had completed college and come into the company and was learning the business. And and uh, he came to me and said, uh, you know, you're so busy with the mission trips, you want to stay close, you want to stay in Ohio and close because you're doing most of the traveling, most of the speaking with churches. But we need to uh, to reach out. We have churches coming to visit us from all over the country. We need to take advantage of that. At that time, Indianapolis First wanted us to come and build their building. And so with uh, that understanding and, and him pushing and having a greater vision because he was not called to the mission field like me, but he was called to the business. And he wanted to grow the business and help churches all across the country. That was part of his mission. And so that's really how we started reaching out to other uh, to other areas and that forced me, and I, I don't think it was a hard thing because God had opened my eyes to turn over uh, leadership in a lot of areas to others, including David. And that's, uh, that's how we started growing. Then following that, the company grew exponentially. So how many mission trips have you been involved with, and what other mission trips were impactful to you? I've completed 115 mission trips. Many of them have been impactful. Um, Again, uh, I've been asked to write books on them. I haven't done any of that yet, but they would fill books. I think of um, Kenya, Africa. I first went there in uh, 1990 and and helped. uh, We built it. We built an addition on a church in Kenya in in the capital and then um, our church started a university there. I traveled with the missionary. He asked me to uh, to go out to the university and make some changes in the plans because the materials that the American architects had had specified were not available there. And I traveled a few days with him to various suppliers, steel suppliers, and others, and and changed the roof structures from wood. In the, in the dorm and classroom buildings to steal and made those changes while I was there. That was a pretty impactful trip. Many years later, the, the, uh, 
the leaders of the Church of the Nazarene asked me to go back over there and help with the design of a large multi-ministry building, which was a new concept. They didn't, they didn't, never heard of it in Africa, but we in the United States, that these leaders had seen many of our buildings, and they needed one on the campus there to seat 3,000, and they'd hired a a, a Kenyan architect, very good architect. I, I worked in his office several days to design a building, but he had no concept of the Mullen ministry, the open space. And he had a building that would seat 3,000, but it had columns everywhere and a lot of uh, bad visual effects, and it didn't do what they wanted. So, uh, So the leaders asked me to go over there, and I went over and I spent time with this architect in his office and his very qualified architects, and I designed a building that we would do here to seat 3,000. It's the largest indoor uh, uh, sports arena in, in uh, Eastern Africa there, and, and presented those drawings to the, to the university board. They loved them and accepted them, and that building is now complete. They have the women's indoor um, volleyball championships there for colleges in, in Eastern Africa because it's the largest arena clear seating. It's also used by the university for all of their activities. So that was a very impactful one. This, a similar thing happened in Korea, South Korea. And um, their college presidents had visited the United States and seen our buildings and asked me to come over there and design their new student center. And so those were a couple of really neat things. I remember going to a church in Portugal. Portugal is very unusual back in the uh, early 80s because no church other than the state church could own property or have a freestanding building. And the Church of the Nazarene was having trouble getting spaces. They had to rent spaces. So again, the leaders asked me to go over and help a church that was trying to rent two spaces, two different churches. One was renting a basement warehouse of a furniture store. And the only entrance was an underground entrance, steep drive down for trucks to go to a warehouse underneath, and they were renting it and needed to turn it into a church. And I spent time there. I worked all night one night before I met with the board because I had a limited time. And I designed that whole interior and showed it to the church board the next day, and they liked that and built it. I remember a general superintendent for the church writing me a letter on a plane back from Europe saying, I turned a sow's ear into a silk purse. And uh, the other church was the second and third floor of an apartment building, and we had to turn that into a church because they couldn't buy property and own their own building, so they had to rent. So I did both those drawings in Portugal. Um, so those were some exciting trips that, uh, that I got to experience that others didn't, but they were mission trips for me. Thank you, Homer, for sharing your experiences you had through missions. The General Church of the Nazarene honored you with the Distinguished Service Award in July 2016 for all your mission and church service. It's encouraging to hear your story and how God used missions to drastically change your perspective about what his church is capable of. To our listeners, thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to hear more of these stories, check out our website and tune in for our next podcast, where we'll dive into more stories, but this time from the McKnight Group's president, David McKnight, and vice president of architecture, Philip Tipton. Mm-hmm.